0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today's conversation will provide you an update on the Preferreds landscape. Joining us here from the UBS Chief Investment Office to lead today's conversation and to introduce our special guest from Spectrum Asset Management. Glad to welcome back Frank Saleo, Senior Fixed Income Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. With that, Frank, welcome back. I'll pass it over to you. Thanks, Dan. Bob, it's always great to speak with you about the preferred sector. I know that uh, Spectrum is an asset management firm that's been specializing in the preferred space since it was founded in 1987. And I know you've been with the firm for about 20 years, so clearly there's, there's a lot of expertise there. And I always enjoy speaking with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. But before we get started, uh, let me just recap for our listeners our view on the preferred sector here at the UBS Chief Investment Office. You know, we came into the year feeling more optimistic about the preferred space after record losses in 2022. And our optimism was driven by our interest rate outlook at the start of the year, as well as the sector's valuation. The primary headwinds of 2022 were higher rates brought about by the Fed's historic rate hikes last year. And we thought coming into 2023 that they would soon be ending. But although that end to the Fed's rate hiking campaign has been delayed. Uh, We did wind up seeing an additional 100 basis points of rate hikes uh, this year. Uh, We do believe that uh, the Fed is, is either done or very, very close to done. Our base case is that the Fed's July rate increase was its last, and we expect to see an extended pause from here. And along with an economic slowdown, that would support lower rates from here. Uh, the recent move in Treasury yields, notwithstanding, of course, but we do believe that rates will be biased lower from here over the next several months. And we could add to that, as I mentioned, current preferred valuations with yields well above historical averages on an absolute basis. So we have a favorable view, a most preferred view on the preferred sector, and we think that uh, against a backdrop of lower trending interest rates, current valuations could lead to impressive performance. So it's a good combination, that interest rate outlook and valuation combination. And we could add to those two factors resilient fundamentals and favorable technicals as well, something I've been referring to as the four-legged stool in some of my recent research reports. So overall, Bob, a pretty good backdrop for preferred, which could contribute to solid 12-month returns from here. So with that setup, what is your perspective at Spectrum, and how does it compare and contrast to our views here at the UBS Investment Office?
1: In in general, uh, we we agree that the junior subordinated space is attractive. Um, Spreads relative to senior debt are wider than usual. Um, Typically, um, when you have a horrible year like 2022, the spreads of the more uh, subordinated products will widen out more, and uh, spreads are about where they finish the year. Last year in uh, two thousand twenty two and that that's a bit of a sine wave obviously uh in March and April with the regional bank defaults uh, spreads blew out, but they've come back in and the market stabilized quite a lot um, with that said, I would say that um, there there are different parts of the preferred and junior subordinated space that we like better or less than others. Um, With regards to, you know, the Fed's activities, it's hard to know. Um, Our own in-house view is that there's one more rate hike maybe in November, but either way, um, they're done or approximately done with the hikes. But the big question then is uh when will they pivot? And, of course, that their answer is always that it's going to be data-dependent, which, you know, makes sense. Um, one thing where well, we find the market right now is uh, the $25 par retail securities. In general, we think of that space as being long-duration because uh, – is fixed coupons. But right now, the dollar price is 83 cents on the dollar. So that gives you better convexity. So if interest rates do decline, you have a a lot of price appreciation that's possible with these securities. Because in the the past, um, we've had a problem where the price couldn't go much above par if the security is callable in the near future. And in general, the $25 par segment of the marketplace has less call protection. Right now, it's at about 2.6 years to call on average, whereas the the $1,000 pars are about three, three and a half uh, years to call. And so so there's a difference there. And um, the, the convexity in the $25 par space is unique, but um, there, there's some positive technicals which we'll probably talk about later with regards to issuance. But the, there's other factors with the $25 par segment; they tend to be more sensitive to volatility, and if rates were to increase, like we saw. In September, they should be hurt more than the $1,000 par segment because the $1,000 par segment is primarily a a, a different coupon structure, variable coupon structure. So it's composed of different securities, which I know you've talked about in the past, um, the fixed rate reset or fixed to refix fix the variable goes by many names but um it's a coupon structure that we at spectrum like very much so um the issuers particularly the banks are issuing perpetual securities to, to be compliant with uh, additional tier one regulatory requirements but um as a perpetual security these securities have an intermediate duration because uh the coupons are going to be fixed for five, seven, or ten years, depending on the specific security. And during that initial period, the issuer can't call the security. Then they have a decision to make. They either call it or let it reset. Over to, uh, It'll be the over five-year constant maturity treasuries in most cases, but some trade off seven or ten years. And that, that that's a chance to... Move the coupon up or downward, but um, we're in a situation where there was heavy issuance in the second half of 2020, 2021, where interest rates were just low. So it was a low interest rate environment, and a lot of the coupons are around 4%, some in the threes, but their spreads are equal. Some are better, some are a little worse, but roughly equal to where they are trading today. So those securities trading in in the 80s, dollar price, for example, um, when they reset, they should get pulled up to par, close to par. Um, The the ones that have bigger resets, all things being equal, they should go to a premium. The ones that have slightly smaller um, coupons, They'll go into the 90s. So that pulled to PAR is a really nice feature. Irrespective of what the Fed does, this will happen. When they approach that first call date, which is also the first reset date, if they're not called, you get a different coupon. You essentially get the market coupon at that time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you you raise a lot of good points there in in what you just said. First and foremost, I think it's a great point that you made. The Fed is either done or close to done. So whether even though it's our house view, our base case, the July hike was their last hike, even if we get one more, they're they're pretty much close, and then that would be the last hike. We're pretty much close to done. So that kind of sets us up for a better interest rate uh, outlook. And and I think you're 100% right in terms of the discounted prices both in the $25 par space and the $1,000 par space, I think it kind of creates an additional uh, element that we don't typically see in the preferred space, which is the potential for price appreciation. Uh, you know, price appreciation potential is not something we, we get to talk about in the fixed income land uh, more broadly and, and and not in the preferred space. So that potential for price appreciation as a... Uh, Interest rates and market yields quote unquote normalize in the years ahead could uh, enhance total return uh, uh, possibilities and I think uh, you're right the final point that you made there one of the exciting aspects about the preferred sector I think is the variety of coupon types and structures and just for the edification of our listeners, uh, you know Bob has mentioned the fixed rate resets these These pay a fixed coupon during their initial non-call period. Typically it's five years. Then if they're not called, the coupon resets, as Bob mentioned, off the five-year, off of a five-year treasury type rate. And this contrasts with a, with a more legacy or or older structure called Fixed to Float, which had a quarterly coupon reset, resetting every, every three months if not called. But I particularly think that, Bob, you know, the, the, the fixed rate resets that are callable, uh, with resets in the next 12 to 24 months, And that are trading at these discounts to par look particularly interesting to me at this point because of where the five-year treasury is. It's well above historical averages right now, the five-year treasury yield. And so, uh, with that benchmark rate, uh, at historically high levels, you really have the potential, as you said, to see these coupons reset higher if they're not called, um, which could provide a pull towards par or they get called at par, which either way, you know, which would be immediate price appreciation potential. So these, discounted fixed rate resets callable in the next twelve to twenty four months look very interesting. Um and I do, as a programming note, I uh, promotional note here, I do highlight specific recommendations in uh my latest uh monthly update to what I call the top picks report. But um shifting gears a little bit, Bob, you did reference uh some of the uh turmoil earlier this year from the regional bank uh concerns. Banks clearly comprise a large proportion of the issuer composition in the preferred sector. Um and those, uh, regional bank concerns seem to have dissipated more sustainably at this point. We think the second quarter earnings results, uh, as well as the Fed stress test has helped restore some confidence among investors. And also the latest regulatory proposals with greater capital requir- requirements, especially for regional banks, you know, have the potential to improve investor confidence as well and, and support the preferred sector more broadly. But what are your thoughts on First, you know what what transpired earlier this year, and and on the banking sector outlook more generally.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with wholeheartedly with everything you said. Um, obviously, um, Silicon Valley um, surprised the marketplace. Um, their recapitalization plan was, was shocking. Um, other regional banks were buying back common stock, and they were trying to have a common stock issuance after they sold their available for sale portfolio um, I mean what what happened here it wasn't an asset quality problem it, it was a, a an issue with regards to confidence and uh, deposits the, the 250 thousand um, maximum amount FDIC insured that probably needs to be raised it hasn't in a long time, and we've had quite a bit of inflation. But um, – and, and the other thing is uh, with technology, um, Twitter feeds and whatnot, information moves around a lot quicker than it used to in the distant past, and you could just move money around on your cell phone. You don't need to go to the branch anymore. But um the things you've said, I, I agree with the regulatory – reform that is proposed um, probably not uh positive for the common equity holder but positive for the fixed income holder yeah, I mean they're proposing uh different treatments for um, their assets but they're also proposing more common common equity capital which is common stock or retained earnings uh, the bank term funding program I think that cannot be stressed how useful that was for the regional banks. And we've seen uh, the assets that are pledged to that program have plateaued and and no longer increasing for a few months now. But the the, the most important thing is that markets are, are not focused on this and worried about it at present. But we still feel that the smallest of the regional banks are vulnerable just because Social media and the equity could potentially be manipulated, but um, they're not the largest issuers. They have, you know, $25 PARs have some very small regional bank issuers, but in general, the larger regional banks, we feel very confident in that. Um, Some people talk about NIM pressure, but we think that's more of a normalization at this point in our uh, cycle. And the the other thing is, um, I I don't know if you've talked about this in previous calls or not, but uh, a lot of the larger regional banks, some people call them super regionals, in the past, they traded tight to the systematically important financial institutions. And some of them now have gone from trading tighter than the large banks to trading wider. And that's a 50 to 100 basis points move on uh, spreads, and this is at the subordinated level, looking at 10 years, um, 10 year bonds, subordinated debt, because it's a really apple to apple comparison. If you're looking at preferreds, they ha- they might have different resets, and what is that worth? Worth, and they have resets at different times. But if you look at subordinated debt. We've seen that this occurred, and it was totally due to scarcity of the large regional banks, not that they're a better entity than the, the largest of the systematically important banks. It's just the systematically important banks have a ton of paper out there.
0: No, that's a, that's a great point, and, and uh, so, many, so much that you touched on there, it, again, I think it it is important uh, in terms of uh, uh Preferred investors' uh, interests relative to uh, common shareholders' interests, and while you know restrictions and regulations that uh, restrain a bank's ability to buy back stock or, or or things of that nature may may be a headwind for uh, uh, to to common shareholders, the retention of that capital as an alternative is a benefit. To, to the, the, the um, stakeholders higher up in the capital structure, every every uh, uh, layer above common shareholders, and and the first layer right on top of common shareholders, of course, are the preferred shareholders, which is a great point. And then that point about the super regionals uh, kind of going from tighter uh, to a bit wider than than the uh, systemically important banks or G six is, is a great point too. And at CIL, we're 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 comfortable. Uh, very comfortable with those super regionals, as well, of course, as the big six money center banks. And frankly, that's kind of where we're focusing because we feel like valuations are attractive enough uh, among those larger issuers that preferred investors don't really need to, um, y- you know, seek out yield at the, from the smaller issuers at this stage of the game because uh, the, the, the yield and valuations. Are uh, yield is so plentiful and, and valuations so attractive across the board right now that it doesn't really pay to dip into these uh, smaller issuers. Um, and,
1: and yeah, you, I agree with that defensive play. The, the larger ones, it, yeah. that's where the value is.
0: It's where the value is. It's where the value is. I couldn't say exactly. Why not? Um, and those are the most highly regulated. The larger the bank, uh, the more the more uh, regulatory uh, constraint. And yet. The yield is there, so um, I think it's a great place to focus. Um, shifting gears once more, you referenced technical uh, earlier in the conversation. You know, these technical uh, supply-demand trends are always a topic of interest in fixed income. And when it comes to preferred, you know, the recent uh, technical trends seem to have the potential to lend a, uh, additional support. As I mentioned at the start of, the, of of the call, I've been pointing out in recent research pieces, we've had. Uh, in just August and September, $6 billion worth of redemptions announced from a variety of issuers. So that means there's going to be more proceeds available for, for reinvestment, which could support preferred and create more demand. And then on the supply side, we could see uh, more redemptions, um, yeah, particularly for these uh, some of these floating rate coupons that are resetting at higher and higher benchmark rates. But Bob, how, how significant do you think those technicals could be for the preferred space? How do you view technicals right now?
1: Yeah, I, I think it depends on uh which segment of the marketplace you're thinking about. But the the twenty five dollar par segment I think is the one that's more greatly affected by these technicals. Just just in September alone we had uh two point four billion in redemptions by uh systematically uh in important bank uh financial institutions that they called $25 par securities and they issued $1,000 par paper. So the large passive ETFs, they don't have a choice. They're going to have to pursue secondary $25 par securities and they're going to have to bid them up. There's no choice about it. I don't think that trend continues. I think it was just a function of after the regional bank scares of uh, March and April, that um, the, the issuers just wanted to make sure they can do the size they wanted to get done, and they chose the thousand dollar par space uh, for which to issue.
0: Now, you, you bring up a great point too about the ETFs, It's something that I've highlighted in the past, although I haven't, I, haven't, uh, I may or not have highlighted in, in recent publications, but the ETFs tend to focus, they're passively managed, in most cases, they're indexed, and those indexes, for the most part, tend to be comprised solely of, of the $25 par-preferred because the $25 par-preferreds uh, tend to be exchange-listed, uh, and that's what the index provider is looking for. So, um, you know, those those flows in and out of those ETFs, the volatility and flows could have a greater impact on the volatility of the uh, $25 off prices, and because they're passively managed index, like you said, it creates um, a certain degree of forced buying because they are looking to, um, by and large, um, uh, mirror the the index that they're tracking. I mean, that's the mandate of a of a passively managed uh, index ETF is to is to is to match the performance of that index. Good point that you make about some of the ETFs and and uh, the fact that they're compelled to buy certain securities uh, as 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 mandated by uh, the index that they track. Yeah. Um, One final point, and we know we're running uh, uh, towards the end of our time. You know, here at uh, UBS uh, at CIO uh, uh, research group, I focus predominantly on, or exclusively, I should say, on the U.S. preferred sector. But I know you at Spectrum, you also invest in European bank securities. Uh, European banks issue what are sometimes called uh, additional tier one securities or AT1s, sometimes uh, referenced also. Part of that are contingent convertibles or COCOs. Uh, Some of these may be similar to U.S. bank preferreds in some ways. Uh, Some ways they contrast. Uh, How does that sector compare with the U.S. preferred market, and, and what are you seeing there right now?
1: Well, um, the, that fixed-rate reset coupon structure was invented in uh, the contingent capital space. And uh, it's nice that we've seen um, the U.S. issuers adopt that after the March 2020 uh, COVID scare. But uh, the contingent capital securities, th- they're, that space is uh, more nuanced, I would say, in the U.S. $1,000 par space insofar as um, regulations change, and uh, a lot of those changes sort of force the hand of the issuers to call them at the first call date, Um, whether or not the triggers are like a low-point trigger versus a high-point trigger. They were issued under U.K. law or issued under New York law, so... a lot of the contingent capital securities tend to get called at their first call date. And, and there, there are other factors there. The, the, the space in general trades a point 1% or 2% greater yields compared to the U.S. paper. And there's a reason. In general, the European banks are less profitable. But they've been improving. So the, the resets at which they're issued, most of the ones that are coming due are getting called. And some of them are getting called and not replaced, so that they're not even replacing them, putting more money into the system, obviously looking to get reinvested. But um, they're just thinking that once the Fed talks about pivoting, even before they pivot and start lowering rates, that that'll signal to the marketplace um, something of a, a certainty it, it'll calm the market and they're thinking that sometime next year um these issuers who have called but didn't reissue will come back to the market to issue more but it, it shows that they have excess capital in the near term that they can actually do this the, the space is mature so u.s. banks european banks They really don't need to issue more regulatory capital. They have enough, it's just a function of refinancing. You'd mentioned some of the fixed to floating grade paper in the US, Um, they're they're paying rather high coupons and we expect that uh, a lot of them will get called and replaced in the near future for the US paper that are fixed to floating. It makes sense, they can refinance cheaper.
0: But it sounds like, uh, to a certain extent, at least in the near term, some of the uh, technical support that we're seeing—that's the, the supply demand on the supply demand side—the technical support we're seeing here in the U.S. market—you know—may be present in the, the European market as well. Um, so very, very interesting. Um yeah. Well, well, listen, this this brings us to the end of our time today, believe it or not. That was it was quick. Uh, but I, I want to thank you again for joining mm-hmm. us, Bob. It's been very informative,
1: and we look forward to speaking with you again. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. Thank you. you.